Hi guys, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. We hope you are well. Today we have a special guest on, a expert in happiness called Christopher Boyce, who has um, been studying the the intangible happiness for many years now, and has also um, travelled around the world on his bike, experiencing a multitude of different feelings. Um, so, without further ado, Christopher, how are you doing? What's the crack? Oh yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, good to be here. Um, yeah, I guess a little bit nervous you know doing this podcast and stuff but it's you know a really great opportunity to kind of share what's going on and just guess my ideas around happiness and whatnot um i guess it's kind of a little bit of difficult times really i mean you know the mm. coronavirus and the lockdown i mean when it all came and kicked off I, I was still running around on a bicycle so i didn't really have a permanent place um so but fortunately there's a lot of good souls out there who are willing to kind of help me so i'm staying with a friend and you know very small flat but we're kind of finding our way and hey it's an opportunity for you know whatever um so yeah kind of ups and downs but um yeah generally generally okay keeping keeping my head above that's good to hear yeah. i just want to before before we get started with the, with the the important questions um what entails what you know what makes a happiness expert what does that actually mean to people who there who are listening who have no idea what that means how do you become a happiness expert like yourself well i don't know i mean we all are experts aren't <laughs> we in our own way i mean <laughs> We all have a sense of what happiness is. Like I wouldn't call myself an expert. I guess I've like I've I've done certain things. I mean that give me a kind of certain perspective on things. I mean I spent uh, like over a decade doing pretty hardcore research on the on the subject. You know what are the things that contribute to a happy, meaningful life. Um, mm. But then I also decided to hop on my bike and spend eighteen months cycling to a place called Bhutan, which is, you know, well famous for its like, national focus on happiness. So like, I don't know anyone who's done that. I guess I'm an expert at cycling to Bhutan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I've, you know, I've considered it a lot. Um, it's part of my profession, I guess. Not that I could really say I have much of a profession these days. I mean, I just guess I live it and breathe it. But I mean, who doesn't really, hey? Mm. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, could you talk me through your years when you were researching and then how did the idea of leaving the research and cycling to Bhutan, how did that come about? And what were you feeling just before you left? As in, was there a certain day where you thought, oh, I have to leave now? Or was it a growing uh, feeling? Or Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was a slow building. It was a slow building process. I mean, I got into the into the game, if you like, got into to researching happiness. You know, as an economist, and I was like, oh, wow, what is it about our lives that, that do bring happiness? And I, I, you know, produced a lot of really good research on it. Um, and I was doing well at my job. Um, but, you know, knowing about happiness and researching happiness is very different from actually applying and living happiness. And I just guess I kind of felt a growing discord between what I was learning and researching and my actual life. And I am looking at the world going, wow. I know what to do, but why am I not doing it? And I guess what it kind of dawned on me is just that, yeah, the structures aren't really in place for me to be able to make those choices. You know, I don't have the time in which I could spend on my on myself and with the, the people I most love. Um, and I guess what I needed to do is I realised I couldn't be happy in the job I was doing. So the irony of an unhappy happiness researcher. And I was like, I need to find a different way. And I guess this was slowly building. And I, what I noticed is I was actually quite good at my job. Uh -huh. um, and I published really well. Um, one of the first papers I ever wrote, actually, is um, 
whether just, just finding out whether promotion brought us better health. And I found that it, it didn't. If anything, it made us kind of a little bit more stressed. So what I took, I, I tried to do is apply what I could to my research. And I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't stretch beyond myself to try and get the promotion. I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Life is good. Uh-huh. And I, I guess what I was, I found is I became more productive and efficient at doing the things I did. Um, so I could start getting away with more stuff because I had a lot more capacity to do it and exploring happiness in my own life. But I guess I came to that, that limit because in the academic world, um, pretty much like most professional working worlds is that, you know, you, you are expected to do things um, and deliver certain outputs. And if you're not doing them, then, you know, people start asking questions. Um, so I was still constrained and I just felt like, okay, I need to actually create a life for myself where I'm not constrained. And I guess I ultimately um, decided I need to leave the work I was doing and set out on a, on a journey. Um, yeah, which went a lot deeper than I thought it would actually. Thanks, yeah. Chris. So, and so I get the impression that you are, well, from what I understand is you're saying that you necessarily didn't feel like you had the time or freedom to fully embody the things that you were learning about happiness. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, I think it's difficult for anyone. I mean, like this is why I said well, we were all experts at happiness because, you know, deep down, you know, we know what's important for our happiness yet we're sort of unable to always do those things. And we can kind of sort of self-blame ourselves and stuff, but there's also an environment out there which is not structured to, to, to bring about happiness. Mm. It is in a way kind of loosely, but you know, the, the fundamental you know, drive of our societies, and this is what I was researching, is that you know, the, the economic fundamentals. We've got to keep growing that economy. Um, and at one point in human history, that was quite beneficial in terms of you know, raising people's well-being and happiness um you know and certainly in the uk we've long reached that point um if we keep focusing on that then you know that's what takes priority so Mm. things and the way the society is arranged will encourage us to do certain things that you know kind of meet someone's profit incentives or whatever um and i found that difficult and i could see those things and i think most people are aware of those things but we find it difficult um to make those choices do you think that there's a way to reconcile the seeming disconnect between the way we are living and working and what we all want to have or achieve? Mm, yeah, I, th- I think there is. I think for me it's been about a process of getting in touch with the deeper human needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and realize that there's a multitude of ways to 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 meet those needs um so my need for connection in this day and age you get a mobile phone and you're on all the the, the apps to to connect with people um and yeah that serves something but it also leaves me a little bit wanting because what i really love is to sit with someone face to face over a cup of tea ideally there might be a fire involved and a little bit of outdoors and that yeah, yeah, yeah. fulfills my need for human connection um but you know when there's a you know the economics and stuff involved, then yeah, it's, it, we're incentivized to, to to chat and communicate in this way. So if you get to the core deep need, which is for human connection, um, we realize that we don't need that thing to meet the need. We just need to recognize the need and see that there's multitude ways of, of meeting it. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. And do you do you think if people really interrogated what their needs were 
they could um, pursue these needs without it impacting on how they are currently living, i.e. like they still need to work 40 hours a week or many in many cases more, or they still need to do this, or they still are under pressure to do this because of the society that they live in. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a stuckness. There's a certain stuckness to, to you know, seeing beyond what we're, we're, we're in um, and how we make those shifts. I mean, the thing is, the reason that we live the way we live is because it supports something, you know, provides mm-hmm. a little bit of safety. I don't have to do anything too challenging, you know, which is perfectly legitimate. It's difficult to go against those kind of contested things and not have that phone and be on that application to, to communicate with people because that's where everyone is. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult to really step outside of those things. Um, um, and I guess my own choice was to, to really step out of it. Um, and I guess I was implementing certain little shifts in my, in my life as I was you know, learning more and more about happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and overall, yeah, they, they brought a little bit of a stretch. There are little changes that we can make. You know, just a simple question. Do I really need that thing? Um, what need is it meeting? Um, and actually, is that the cost of that thing really worth the number of hours I have to put in at work? Mm. Sometimes we go, yes, it is, and that's that's totally legitimate. And sometimes we'll think, oh, no, it's not. We may still get it anyway, but if it's not, then we go, okay, maybe I don't need that, regardless of the pressures that I may be experiencing from what everyone else has, as well as, you know, what you know, if we have children, what the children would like. You know, we can still try and find some kind of decision but at the same time we still need to battle against it there's you know there's there's an environment out there which is is encouraging us to consume these things to 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 meet these needs in these certain ways so it's really difficult um and if we can find a way then try and find that way um but you know it's, it's, it's difficult i think and you, you bring up that point and it's kind of, it brought something to mind straight away. I'd, I spent a little bit of time after my first year at university, um, volunteering at a orphanage in South, the Southern state Kerala of India. Um, and some of the kids there had, you know, as you can imagine, in an Indian orphanage had really, um, horrible back stories and, you know, we were left in complete poverty and there was kind of nowhere no way out for them and yet despite all of this and their personal tragedies um <clears throat> they seem to me and, and to be the happiest um kids that i'd ever actually met uh and i remember we went when we were going out there went out there with my girlfriend and when we went out there it kind of all happened last minute and we were like we were in the um the airport and we realized we hadn't got anything for the kids so we went quickly and we got a massive bag of harry bows and so when we arrived it wasn't much but we just you know we opened the harry bows and gave it to them which is a, a sensory experience i don't think they'd ever they'd ever experienced before but then what they did is they passed they got one harry bow took it out and they passed it around and then they would just suck on their individual harry bow for as long as they could and then they would gently nibble at it before it would all you know before they finished and then we later on we got them we did an arts and crafts kind of week with them and uh so we went out into the local village and we got some balloons and some other bits and bobs and we gave them the balloons and three weeks later the kids were still playing with the balloons and when invariably they would pop every now and again you could really see the sadness on these kids faces and it it kind of struck me because i thought see if you did that to to a child in the uk i mean or in the western world let's just say uh they might be happy with the balloon for 
30 minutes, maybe an hour max. But after that, they'd get bored. And then I extrapolated and I thought, well, yeah, but I'm the same because if I get a new iPhone after six months, I'm always, I'm already thinking about the, the newest iPhone that's going to come out later, which is going to cost me a grand. Um, and I've tr- every now and again, I try to keep it in check and try to keep those that memory alive of what these kids who had nothing, how happy they were with the simplest of things. But how, how can we do that in a, you know, you, you were a former economist. How can we do that in a country, in a society that really is all about consumption? It's all about capitalism. It's all about moving on to the next thing because the next thing um, invokes a sense of status. You know, if I have, a, if I have an, uh, a Ford, that's great. But if I have a Merc, that's even better because people are going to look at me a different way. How, how do we do that on a day-to-day level, it, you know, without having to go to an orphanage in India to experience that? Mm, so you're using that memory to try and curtail or manage that, that, that continuous need for for wanting and expecting more from stuff um yeah yeah i mean it's it's a really useful experience to have that and hold that um yeah how do we how do we i mean so i guess like a lot of these 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 needs and expectations are coming from somewhere and we can look at ourselves and think we really need these things but also you know our our needs and our preferences are managed because it's in their interests certain people including ourselves you know we all want to consume we want our friends to consume and you know it's all good for business and we like these things um but it sounds to me like you're getting to like the bare basics of things where you you know people are really enjoying things as they are i mean kids are amazing um like and i connect a lot to my you know so you connect to that that situation in Kura, um south india yeah. but i connect a lot to my my, my own child like self um, and even like the fact that a child could play with a balloon for 30 minutes is amazingly inspiring, right? Because it's just a balloon. Mm. It's just a thing. But children are amazingly creative and joyful beings. And I guess what I do is I, I, I kind of connect back to my kind of childlike self um, and just that ease at which I could find joy and, and excitement in, in pretty much anything. I'd also find myself, um, you know, experiencing difficulty as well. But I guess it's more kind of being in touch with that kind of emotional space, um, which I find really rejuvenates me um, and keeps me in contact with like the kind of uh, joyful sort of happiness. Um, and then the kind of other thing I was kind of getting from what you're expressing, maybe I'm going a little bit off tangent here, but it's just in terms of like the happiness or what kind of happiness we're experiencing. Because I think what you're talking there about um, the children that you met in the school is a certain kind of happiness in the moment, um, which actually makes people, well, sometimes when we go to different places across the world, we kind of have this notion of like, wow, people are really happy here in a way that we're not. Mm. Um, it's not, it's a different type of happiness. And I don't think we should you know, romanticize the, no- the notion in some senses that the people in abjectly appalling conditions are happy. They'll still smile and they'll make the best of things. Um, and what we find is that, you know, you look across the world, um, you know, there are some places in the world where people smile and laugh a lot more than we do in the UK. Uh, and mm. that's really important. Um, but then, you know, in the U- in the UK, what I kind of sense is it's more of a, we think we're happy rather than we feel we're happy. Yes. Right. So it's more of a kind of satisfaction based type of happiness. So when I think about my life, I think I've done and achieved all the things I want to. Um, and what I kind of find is that there's, you know, if we can kind of sort of manipulate that kind of satisfaction aspect of things and keep people slightly dissatisfied, then they'll keep wanting that satisfaction. 
know, that doesn't mean that they can't be happy and smiling throughout their day. Um, but I guess that's it's, it's useful to kind of bear that in mind, I suppose, when we're we're buying that thing, such as you mentioned, like the iPhone, is that you know that's the thing I think I should have, and you'll get it. Yeah. And there might be a little bit of joy and pleasure in it, but you know, after a very short while, you're thinking about the the next iPhone and how that oh. might satisfy you, and you know, again, you'll go through that process. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that process. I mean, it's slightly part and parcel of the environment that we've co-created um mm. but i guess what i kind of always feel is just like having the awareness of it really is really important um and it sounds to me like that experience that you had is is, uh, is a real um something that holds you in your own process um yeah for sure and just exploring and understanding these things and like i say for me it's that's connecting to my own childlike self or any child when i see the magic of what it means to to be alive not always because you know you know, sometimes it is a struggle, you know, you know, child, childhood can be a difficult time as well. Um, but it's also the time where we, we do actually really feel our emotions. And that's mm. really important. Yeah, I often get the impression that we're almost encouraged to consume or distract ourselves when we are feeling some sort of negative emotion, like you said, like, oh, when we're dissatisfied, oh, if we consume or distract ourselves with this, we might feel better. I was wondering, do you think by by avoiding negative actions to distraction, uh, do you think we're also numbing our access to positive emotions? Yeah, I, 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 I said so. Um, <clears throat> I guess this is more my own process, like growing up of just like, yeah, you know, don't feel, don't cry. Um, you know, people not wanting to see my negative emotions. We're not very good at, 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 at dealing with the negative emotions in ourselves and other people mm. um and when i think back to my child self like you know it was okay to cry because that's you know how i was feeling mm. and somewhere along the line it kind of came became unacceptable and you started concealing those those negative emotions um and almost trying to escape them um and i, I don't know i mean is it possible to switch off half of ourselves and just feel the good stuff that people want to hear want to see sometimes we can but we're often not being very truthful to ourselves when, you know, sometimes we just want to cry or, or feel grief. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, I know my own experience has, has been certain avoidance and I still do it. I still do it to this day, but, you know, a lot less than I used to, certainly. I, uh, I've heard a few times, uh, I don't know if you know Gabor Mate, but he, he mentions how you, you'll never meet a baby who is, who is disconnected from itself like its feelings like if a baby is hungry you're going to find out very soon or if a baby is unhappy you're going to find out very soon mm. and he said it's it's like we're almost it, sometimes i feel like it's almost we've been taught to not to like create a bigger and bigger distance between you know our feelings and our reactions or our emotions mm. yeah i certainly certainly see that, that disconnection between the thinking and feeling um, mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I certainly, certainly resonates with me. Um, Christopher, is it, you, you talk about the, um, the disconnection and, and the UK and I think, you know, obviously my, I'm, I'm half Italian. I've moved out to Madrid two or three years ago now. And so that culture contrast is quite apparent between the, the Latin Mediterranean based culture and the UK culture, um, 
you know, stereotypically, just generally um, being quite cold. But I also think about how in the UK as well, we have to temper you know, success has to be tempered and happiness, you know, no one in, in the UK, at least in my experience anyway, no one kind of likes to see someone overly happily, overly happy or, or because we kind of get this notion that they're almost bragging about it. They're showing off, right. That they should keep, everything should be kept in moderation, whether it's happiness or whether it's despair, it should all kind of be kept in moderation. And I know that you, I saw that you wrote an article about you know, called Felicidad in España. Um, and you're talking about like the happiness in Spain. And I was wondering about, you know, during your travels, how you think that cultures that allow people just to be more expressive, you know, we are, I think we're aware that especially Mediterranean cultures are a lot more expressive, whether they're upset at you or whether they're really happy, you know, they'll, they'll smother you in, in hugs and kisses and all sorts. And, and that's both on the men's side and on the, on the women's side, you know, it's not um, just solely women that are allowed to do that. And I was wondering if on your travels, you've seen more cultures, maybe in Bhutan and, and other areas around there that where they are allowed to be more expressive, both happy with the happy or if they're despairing and that whether you think that kind of that contrast, because I don't, I don't know of any other cultures really um, that, want us to temper happiness you know in england i think it's a real thing that you you don't no one wants to see someone that's always happy always talking about how great their life is because it can come across as quite um almost narcissistic almost kind of they don't care about anyone else's feelings which is something that is really odd to me Mm. yeah showing our feelings to others is, is is challenging um I guess the kind of even if I mean displaying a kind of certain sense of happiness or sadness, it kind of puts you in a very vulnerable space. Um, mm. It's something that people can can attack. Essentially, I feel. Um, I mean, I think it's beautiful to see people in in, in, in joyous states because um, it infects me. It's contagious. But then, if we're not particularly happy ourselves and we see that, then we want to you know crush that or we might feel jealous about it. Um, yeah. You know, we don't have a very good way of aiming to contain that that emotional space, uh, which I think part and parcel, um, as we talked about earlier, is like pushing away the negative, but also not really embracing the positive. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's. I mean, I guess it's like we don't really appreciate these things too until we we start experiencing other cultures and how things are different and i don't want to say oh any culture is better than another or whatever and it's just different um and i think through that interaction and experience of other cultures and celebrating our experiences in other cultures and really getting to grips with them can really help you know us understand ourselves you know i wouldn't understand all this stuff about emotions um unless i spent a lot of time in different situations with different types of people in different cultures um and I certainly felt like um, when I was cycling through Latin America, just wow! I just felt almost like being a famous person. You know, every every time <laughs> you you cycle through a place, people you know want to invite you in, and you know, there's no you know there's no inhibitions about it. It's just mm. what you do. Um, and then what I notice in in me is every time that happened is that I would start getting really fearful, right? And just like, oh, what's this? Maybe this isn't what I think it's going to be. Uh, maybe I'm in danger. Maybe there's something, and it's like that judging, fearful mind. Mm. And eventually, you see that so many times. And I think it's that kind of more anxiety, thinking-based judgment. Um, it's something times actively encouraged um, in from my own cultural experience. Um, it's just like, wow, let that go, go with it, because actually, this is a wonderful, beautiful opportunity for connection. Um, and I guess, kind of through that process, like, and just deepening in and just letting it go and going with the moment uh being more 
you know, present focus and certainly tapping into my emotions, both positive and negative, using them as indicators. I guess what you were talking about earlier, I was thinking that idea of, you know, the, the child, Gabo Mate saying that, you know, there's, that, that, that this feeling being is that actually they're wonderful indicators, whether they're, they're positive or negative. Yeah, yeah. Um, so rather than, you know, like feeling like I needed to react, I just go with it and just flow and um, ended up having so many beautiful experiences um, with people all across the world. Um, and, I guess what I kind of realized is like, wow, the, the beautiful power of giving a gift and enabling other people to gift, to, to give to one another. Um, and I realized I was able to do that. And, you know, human beings, matter culture, really like to help other human beings. Um, yeah. But what I found in Latin America is that it felt like it was just a lot more opportunities um, and people were a lot more responsive to a stranger on a bicycle um, than, you know, places that I'm more familiar with, but mm. having deepened into myself and knowing what it means and takes to be present and allow people space to be themselves. Actually, the gifts still can't come in. People are still responsive. So it's like holding that open, that holding open those emotions, positive and the negative and being vulnerable about it and not being afraid to be scared can really invite interesting interactions, no matter where we are. Although, you know, culturally it can sometimes be more struggle. Um, I guess is my experience. Did that ask you answer your question? I kind of went off on that. Yeah, no, it did. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's just that's what I think as well. You know, experiencing different cultures, like you said, none are better or, or worse. They're just they're just different in every way. And I think the thing that I've most benefited from in my short life is just traveling as much as I have, uh, and kind of you no know, picking up on those different cultures and and the different kind of. Um, uh, nuances that they all have and just tr trying to kind of cherry pick mm. from one to the other to the other you know it's not that I dislike the UK or the British culture whatsoever there's some of it parts of it that I absolutely love but I just kind of try to leave the other parts that I don't really agree with at the door and take some of the and you know adopt some from other cultures mm. that's that's my kind of philosophy really. I guess what that's kind of stirring up is that yeah I mean it is quite nice to implant ourselves in a culture and really suck that up and learn something about ourselves. But I guess as I've kind of traveled more and more, I'm more aware of the nuances that just change from just going from one side of a city to another city. And there's still that deep potential for learning um, that can happen in terms of, you know, what we can, you know, inspire ourselves to, to, to be, I suppose. Um, uh, Christopher, you mentioned in one of your blog posts, how you have come that you thought or you noticed that a lot of your anxieties were actually not yours and that they were other people's anxieties and that you've kind of adopted them. Could you like expand on this realization? Cause I really felt the same uh, when, when I was reading this, I thought, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. It was a curious one. I guess it kind of, it dawned on me this time I was, I was cycling on my bike and you know, when you're cycling around the world on a bicycle and you've just got all your kit with you, you know, you set up a home wherever you want. It's a pretty scary, vulnerable place to be in. And sometimes mm -hmm. you just don't feel like camping. Um, I, I'm quite an anxious prone kind of guy. Um, I just watch it and deal with it and kind of try and base my experiences more in the body. So it's like, do I have a real need to be scared here? Is this a scary place or um, is it just in my mind? And I guess on a bicycle, there's some days when you just feel a little bit like, Ooh. and I remember this is one day I'm cycling around and I was convinced I was going to camp that night. Um, just, you know, free camping, whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, after lunch, I noticed I was feeling a little bit like, oh, really fearful and scared, more than I otherwise should have been. Something seemed to have shift, shifted. And what I noticed is that actually when I stopped, I'd spoken to this woman uh, who was a really nice, pleasant, friendly woman. And, you know, at the end, she looked at me very sternly and was like, take care. There's a lot of bad people out there. And I suddenly realized and just remembering that, it's just like, wow, okay, that's somehow transferred onto me. And as soon as I realized that, I kind of let it go. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's her fear. And I picked up on that and gone, yeah, okay, I should be scared here, apparently. Mm. Um, and I just kind of moved it away. The fear was still there. There's still the voice of her was still there. But I realized it, it wasn't really my fear. And I guess what I kind of realized is that, you know, whenever we go somewhere or do something, People tell us things about that they've read or a friend of mine had this experience happen to them. Oh, if you do that, don't go there. And really, like, that's just someone else's fear. Mm. And once I separated that from myself, I just thought, okay, it's not mine. So if it's not mine, I'll just, you know, keep listening to my body. And when there's something really scary that's in front of me, I'll get the hell out as best I can. Yeah, um, but most of the time, like, wow, it's not. It wasn't really my fear. I guess I experienced that the most when I was in Mexico. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots of people, you know, I mean, just next to the US and the the US, you know, fairly fear based society. I would say, like, you know, say so next door neighbors, and they hear tons of news about how terrible Mexico is. Um, so that that you know, so the news is propagating a little bit of that fear as well, mm -hmm. as well as each other. Um, so you hear a lot of stories about Mexico, which is a big country. Of course, things happen. They happen anywhere. Um, so I guess it kind of dawned on me a little bit around that. And Yeah, I, I, I remember having the exact same experience. Mm. Uh, I spent some time in Peru and in Mexico. And I remember whenever I talked to people, particularly maybe a bit older than my friends, but sometimes my friends also, and they would say, oh, Jesus, were you not nervous? Like, isn't that place a bit crazy? And all uh, these kind of things. And then I realized like when I was on the ground, like when I was just there, I didn't feel the fear that was being projected on by all these people. I mean, yeah, there were some situations that maybe I wouldn't have seen before, but yeah, it, it was kind of, I had something similar where I kind of made the conscious decision to actually just live live by my own experience rather than somebody else's like fear and not even experience like mm. it, yeah it was a important differentiation lived yeah. experience right what are we experiencing and tuning into that which i guess like when i'm not in contact and not present with my emotions and stuff i i forget about that and i'm too in my mind thinking about what you know john or whoever said about this place yeah um, so it's, it's really really important um big time and, and Jim, I remember, I remember when I came to visit you in Dublin, and, and you were taking me kind of around a bit, a bit of a walk, and you're going, "Oh, this is like the dangerous part." I can't remember the name exactly. Maybe Crumlin, but I don't want to do Crumlin a disservice if it wasn't Crumlin. But you were taking me around parts of Dublin. And you're like, "Oh, these are quite dangerous parts, and this is this, and blah blah." I think people also forget that they actually experience, you know, especially when talking about danger, they experience it all the time in their daily lives but we just get used to it you know so if it's a londoner they might or a dubliner or whatever they might experience really dangerous areas but they're so used to them that to them they're no longer dangerous but then all of a sudden they fly out to mexico and it's like oh the minute i get off this plane i'm gonna get shot and stabbed it's like well there's no reason for that to happen obviously kind of keep your wits about you but like like you're both saying just kind of live it through your own experience and and take what you've learned from your own 
your own life kind of forward with you you know it's not like none of none of us have grown up in castles you know, gated castles with security guards all around we've all kind of experienced it from one time to another but i think we get so comfortable with our own home experiences you know that anything foreign can seem scary even if there's no danger there whatsoever just the fact that someone's speaking a different language or they look different to you mm-hmm. can kind of alienate yourselves you know i remember when i went to india i traveled around a lot but we went to kerala it was and we went to this little village louisa and i were the only white people there and it's the first time that i'd gone to a country where i couldn't speak any lingo whatsoever and that just scared me alone just that i had no there was no kind of um, home comforts for me. Nothing, everything they did was completely foreign. They ate with, you know, their hands to the fork and knife. They, um, and it had to be one hand in particular. The, the way they dressed was different. Uh, everything that they, everything that I took for normal for granted in England and in the Western culture was different in India. And that alone scared me, you know. And then you kind of realize, actually, I mean, in general, the Indians that I kind of met with, some of the nicest people I'd ever met and were so friendly, but just that kind of, uh, initial shock factor what scared me more than anything you know what i mean mm. yeah. sure for sure uh, christopher I-, I wanted to ask you about whether or not we should be actually searching for happiness uh rather than contentness because f- for me m- my belief around happiness is uh, you mentioned like there are different types of happiness but for me happiness is generally just kind of like a f- like a, a fleeting emotion kind of like all emotions Whereas content, contentness for me is more of um, like a groundedness, um, de- regardless of a situation which people would call good or bad exper- uh, happening, that you still have this kind of grounded contentness that, okay, no, I'm, I'm okay with this situation. Mm. Yeah, there are different types of, of, of happiness. And I think it's in, important to kind of clarify a little bit around that because so, so for some people, happiness will mean contentment. Um, and for other people, contentment will mean happiness. They're kind of the same thing. Um, and I guess there's what I've found when talking about happiness, like I don't really like the word happiness, but you know, it's a word that really connects people and people get it and at least they're interested. Um um, but we do not. We don't always have a shared understanding of what we're talking about. Um, yeah. And you know, it's not like you know. I'll, I'll use the word happiness to get people interested, and you know, we're chatting, and that's cool. And if it goes deeper, we can start talking about the different types of happiness and whether we should try and pursue happiness or not. Um, but it's a really valid question. Um, so the kind of fleeting feelings for me, like the happiness, it's a kind of like a hedonic sense of happiness. It's yeah. like ups and downs, you know. Chasing that kind of happiness, yeah. I mean, you can keep chasing the highs, but eventually those highs, you know, become not as high as they once were or can mm. even t- turn into some kind of addic- addiction or something like this. Yeah. Um, whereas contentment, I mean, that kind of, it's a, a type of happiness, I suppose. There's another two-form happiness. One I mentioned is kind of almost like a thinking type of happiness mm-hmm. um, where we evaluate our lives. Um, so am I satisfied? You might say that's quite similar to contentment. Um, and I think there's, you know, some elements of, you know, creating dissatisfaction so that we continuously stay on this treadmill. Um, mm. but what I kind of, what for me feels like the happiness that I feel is the most valuable in my life and I live by is what, so, you know, kind of Aristotle in a kind of Greek philosopher kind of uh, differentiate happiness between the hedonic type of happiness and what he called eudaimonic type of happiness. And what that was, was living in line with cultural values of the time. 
which in his day was like virtues such as like courage and bravery and stuff like that um, and moral living a moral life and so on um, but now it's kind of more conceived as that idea of like idea of a human thriving or human flourishing um, and that kind of consists more of like a connectedness um, meaningful existence um, and I guess freedom um, if you like and that's what I try and live my life by which for me incorporates element of contentment it also incorporates elements of um, satisfaction and it also to an extent creates a hedonic experience as well because um, it's you know feeling happy is part of it um, in the moment um, but I also think that feeling sad is also part of happiness yeah. um, and appreciating that emotional experience and using that emotional experience to indicate what we should do. You know, if we lose a loved one, you know, um, maybe you know, a loved one dies or something, it's pretty normal to feel sad about that mm-hmm. um, and to, to, to be sad and to grieve over that um, rather than thinking this is not how I should be feeling. And I think there's an element of, you know, chasing that high in that hedonic sense, um, whereas we can still claim to be happy, yet you're still dealing with the loss of a loved one, for example. Uh, does that make sense? Does that yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I understand. And could you tell us about the things that you learned on your trip, which you may have not believed or, or taught before the trip, and how have you tried to implement what you've learned now that you've returned? I know it's a big question. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. The things about happiness, right? Is that I kind of think that we know this deep down we know what we need but we've forgotten somewhere um by whatever the conditioning of our society or whatever so the things that i learned i mean I, I kind of knew already but i guess it was more of a deeper and i researched a lot of this as well but i guess it was more of a deeper experiential process that i went through um and i guess there was kind of three things that that, that come to mind when i think about you know what are the really valuable things that I learned on the journey. Um, and the, the first of those, I kind of already briefly mentioned that, was allowing other people to give is one of the best gifts we can give, if you like. So receiving gift. Um, and what I find with that is that really, um, really creates really deep, meaningful connections with other people. Um, because someone offers us something and we can say no, and where does it go from there? And I'm not saying we need to say yes to everything just to create connection, but it enables someone to go, yeah, I'll receive that gift. And, you know, it's not a question of giving something back. It's just receiving and then creates a connection. Um, the other learning, I guess, I found is that, I guess, something like um, taking the time. Um, no, I guess, no, the other learning would be, as I've already briefly mentioned today, is like that fear and anxiety and where that comes from. Um maybe from other people and what we do with it. Um, so what we do with it, um, we can be quite reactive to it. Oh, I feel scared, therefore I'm not going to do that. Um, and I guess the, the final thing is like just more awareness, taking the time. Um, as I see it, you know, the world is in chaos. It always is. It's a kind of continual, evolving, flowing thing. And most of the time it doesn't make sense. And in that anxiety and that pain and anguish, we're rushing around trying to what we might call fix it. Um, and actually, have we really sat down and taken the time to understand what the issue is and what our deeper needs are? And 
I guess I realized that I haven't and I don't. Um, so I guess what it invites me to do is just to take my time and really listen to myself and act when I know what I need to do from a very deep place rather than going, oh, I need to do lots of things and then doing them and realizing they weren't the right things. So I guess a, a little bit of slowing down. Um, and mm. I guess I could base a lot of those in the research, but also not. And I guess when I came back, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And what I started noticing is all those things coming back from my kind of cultural history coming back to me. It's like, oh, yeah. uh, I've, I've got to find a job now. I've got to you know, get back into society. Um, oh, people don't give here. People are, you know, you know, individualistic. They don't want to, to come together. Um, and I was like, wow, you're, you're just, you're feeding into that anxiety, Christopher, you know, relax. Um, and I guess when I first came back, I was, you know, very anxious, but instead of doing the things to make myself feel safe, which is have a house, get a job and stuff like that, I realized I didn't need to do those things. So what I did is I essentially stayed on my bicycle and just floated around having conversations with people, trying to feel into what I needed to do next. Um, incidentally, I still haven't figured out what I need to do next. Um, but I guess I'm still uh, taking my time, my time over that, and then yeah, you're not rushing in, and you're not being yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I've decided at the moment. I'm, I've pretty much nearly written a first draft of a book based on my journey. And oh yeah. I didn't start that as soon as I came back. People were like, oh, it's an interesting story. You should write a book, and I'm like, yeah, but is that what I need to do? And it was only six months after I got back, I suddenly connected with that. It's like, yeah, that's something that I need to do. And it will help me in and of itself. It doesn't matter whether anyone reads it. Is that it's, mm. it's also a process in which I can really connect and understand more about my journey. Um, so I'm coming to the end of that. You know, you know, very strange situation that we're all in at the moment in under lockdown, and that is what it is. Um, so yeah, I, I'm staying with a friend, and I don't know what will happen. And I can get really scared and anxious about it, but at the same time, breathe. You know, the things that are really important for my happiness is like being surrounded by, by loved ones, having care and consideration for other people, meeting loads of people on Zoom these days. Um, you know, also, you know, having a space. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot in my life that I can connect to and, and let go. There's not things I need to do. Yes, it would be nice to have a job and get some income, but I'm okay for now. Um, and rather than worrying about that, which will be a problem when I run out of money in a year's time, say, I'll worry about that when I'm actually faced with the situation and I, you know, I'm a pretty resourceful guy, I'll get a job, whatever. Um, mm. Something will come along. So I guess, yeah, breathing into it really. Um, and when I came back, that's, that's kind of what I did. And, uh, <laughs> so many things come to mind, Chris. <laughs> so two or three things that I'd like to say in response to all this. Uh, one, uh, I, I resonate deeply with the first point you make because I remember like kind of often growing up around my friends many of my friends not wanting to ask people for something or not wanting to accept something from somebody because oh yeah no i i don't want to burden them or i don't want to i don't know yeah it's it's kind of like no i want to be fully independent and i i actually read a uh, listened to a podcast that was an economist talking about research behind this exact point how actually when you allow yourself to receive uh, gifts whether that's a meal whether it's a house as in like a housing a boarding whether it's even small gestures that really improves the connection between people 
and highlights the interconnectedness of it rather than I think we're encouraged to believe that we're totally independent and no I don't want to ask him for this mm. I can do this on my own or I don't want to do this or I don't want to do this we believe we are and that's how we want to be seen to be as well yeah because you can't rely yeah. on people that's weak you know yeah um, that's it it's, yeah. it's difficult for anyone to get through that you know um mm. and I guess I've, I've in my journey what I did is I kind of shifted through that um but yeah anyway so you were saying you noticed that around your friends I cut you off there, for so. sure for sure and I'm even hearing like taught sometimes when I do accept gifts, like some part of me saying like, ah, oh, you shouldn't do this. You should be doing this on your own or whatever, whatever. Um, but like you said, I often feel like we do know these things and we just kind of have to quiet the like cultural background that has like given rise to all these thoughts and kind of just go, oh no, this is another person who cares about me that wants to help me. Why wouldn't I accept this? You know, and I would do the exact same if I could. You know, and I may do in the future. You know, yeah. People um, want to help. They, 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 you know, people care and they want to help. So when they give us something, because they care, um, and also when they tell us, you know, oh, be careful. There's lots of frightening places. It's because they care. But rather yeah, than say, yeah. hey, I care about you, we kind <laughs> of, <laughs> you know, we say, oh, be careful. We're like, okay, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so I'm glad it resonates. No, for sure. Um, the, the second thing that came to mind was uh, how you mentioned how we are also encouraged to kind of, oh, if there's an issue, all right, stand up and just start start working or start doing something because that's the best way to go about it. And then I, I saw in one of your blog posts that you quoted um, the Alan Watts quote. I'll just read it out, which says, as muddy water is best cleared by leaving it alone, it could be argued that those who sit quietly and do nothing are making one of the best possible contributions to a world in turmoil. Now, I know a lot of people will read that and think that's absolute nonsense. But could you um, could you expand, or could you, yeah, could you tell us about your thoughts behind this quote? Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading um, reading his book as as I was writing. Um, and I guess I've looked at how I've tried to do lots of things. And so as I was an academic, like I was trying to like really push and promote happiness because it's a really important thing. But actually, I wasn't taking stock of who I was and what I had to contribute and bring to this 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 research area. I mean, I still had a lot of things going on in my life, and I guess I felt like I needed to 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 sit more carefully really and work out where i'm best used i mean i was writing lots of academic papers but is that really the best use of me i mean what i thought is you know the reason i got into academia is because you know like anyone i wanted to create a happier world um that's a really important thing how can i best do that and i felt it was an as an academic what i didn't realize is i didn't connect with that grander purpose i thought to do that i had to be an academic and i guess by letting go of that i need to be an academic um i realized i could meet that need in other ways and what was better for me is if i understood what my gifts were um and gave them to the world that way um because yeah i can do maths and I can do stats and i can write academic papers but um not many people want to read academic papers about happiness <laughs> yeah <laughs> but they're more likely to to follow a guy uh riding around the world to get to bhutan um so i'm like oh maybe that's a better use of me you know admittedly i couldn't have done that probably and it wouldn't have been as interesting if i hadn't had the academic experience in the first place and then i guess just on the bicycle um you know taking my time 
being willing to stop and take in this, the scenery rather than feeling like I had to rush to get to the next place um, because of, you know, achieving some objective, like getting to Bhutan. It wasn't actually really important that I ever got to Bhutan. I didn't realise that a lot of the time, um, but it came from lots of time on the bicycle and going, yeah, okay, I just need to be here, present. Um, and I guess I think a lot of it about, I think a lot about it when I'm thinking about, you know, political problems or environmental problems that we suffer. And it's not to, you know, say these issues are not problematic and that there aren't a lot of people doing good things. Um, but I think a lot of actions are well-intentioned, um, but often act acting out of not really knowing themselves and also the situation. Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, everyone's doing what they can. Um, but I guess, you know, hey, if we all stopped and paused, as we're having to do in this very unique situation being locked down, um, maybe it gives scope to solve the problems that, you know, have been bothering us for such a long time. And um, I can think of like homelessness. I've read articles about that being almost like solved um, in recent weeks um, because not people, I don't know how that is. I'm not in a place where there's people um, on the streets, but I've read some articles that, you know, people have been put up in hotels and stuff like that. Yeah. Is that true? I don't know. Chris yeah, yeah, they've they've kind. Of, I think I read yesterday ninety percent of uh, homelessness, what well, people who are sleeping on the streets have have now found a temporary kind of roof over their heads. So it just goes to show where there's a will, there's a so way. So this, this um, slowing down, but, right? I mean, we're slowing down. Yeah, uh, it's very difficult, and there's a lot of hardships and struggle through this, definitely. Um, but you know, ooh, we're slowing down. Do we get to think about things and what's really important to us in a different way? And uh, hopefully, you know, people might have time to listen to more podcasts and you know listen to this one for example and go yeah christopher's on something or not <laughs> yeah we hope we hope so we hope so christopher you, you talked you spoke about your academic um kind of uh research i just wanted to touch on that because there's part of me that's i've always you see these the you know the rankings um and these country rankings of the, the most happy the happiest countries and so on and I've always wondered how they how they um, calculate that because, like you said, you know, people have so many different definitions of happiness, and according to those definitions, their happiness will be different. You know, if someone's if someone's happiness is defined as contentment or satisfaction, that's a lot, lot more different to someone who defines it as you know those fleeting moments of euphoria. Uh, so, just wanted to kind of just touch on that. Someone who has kind of been in the field and studied and spent a lot of years in the field. How is it that these? Um, countries are actually ranked and why is it that why is it that the nordic countries norway denmark why do they always seem to be the the top ranking countries in terms of the happiness index sure. okay yeah I mean, it's a really important interesting question um so i, I kind of mentioned previously that you kind of got vaguely three types of happiness what i call the hedonic happiness which is the kind of emotional feelings ups and downs um you've got what i'd call like an evaluative happiness which is like the satisfaction i'm satisfied with my life when i think about my life essentially and then you have what i call the eudaimonic type of happiness which is more if you like the human flourishing type of happiness um mm. so what those those need to so the re how we understand people's happiness is we basically ask people questions so um how happy do you feel in this moment right um how excited do you feel in this moment so kind of positive emotions in the moment right mm -hmm. um and we ask people to rate that on a scale from zero to ten for example 
Um, for something like the evaluative happiness, we might ask someone like how satisfied you are with your life or on a ladder from zero to 10 in terms of the best possible life versus the worst possible life, what would you give yourself? Um, or you have the more um, the human flourishing type of happiness, which might link to something like you know, how meaningful or worthwhile do you feel like the things you do in your life are. Um, so they're three very mm. different types of happiness. And what the happiness league tables concentrates on um, and also, yeah, so there's different elements of life that feed into different types of happiness. You know, um, there's a good chance that if you're happy on one of those, you'll be happy on all of them. But there's also not, right? So okay. um, what the happiness league tables that we come out each year are based on are based on the, the evaluative type of happiness, which is the, the satisfaction with life or how high you are on a, on a ladder from zero to ten. Um, right. What we know about these types of happiness is that it conforms to it tends to conform with kind of cultural expectations. So, you know, it's not always if you have a lot of stuff, but there is some correlation. So if you have a lot of stuff and you've achieved the things that you're supposed to achieve, then you do well or do better on this type of happiness. Right? But right. so you could have this really high status job and it'd be great, but that doesn't actually mean you're experiencing or feeling happiness throughout your day. So you might actually answer the question of how happy are you now a lot lower than other places so what this is mm. what, what i kind of have a bit of beef about these kind of lead tables is what it does is it conforms if you like to um societal norms of what the kind of mm -hmm. cultural expectations are which is all well and good you know they can really contribute to our well-being but sometimes those things are not what we really need they're just what we think we need and if we don't have them yeah. you know, dissatisfied. So the certain countries do well at that because on the whole, they're you know, an economically advanced country and they tend to have a certain stability in their society. Therefore, they do well. Now, if you look at the first yeah. question, such as how happy are you in the moment, right? It's actually Latin American countries that completely outstrip other countries, right? Um, so that's not to say that you know the uk does particularly badly or scandinavian countries do badly but you know finland has been consistently ranked the highest um sat most satisfied country on a zero to ten scale right uh, yeah. in terms of averages across the citizens um <clears throat> but in terms of how happy people feel in the moment how much they smile or laugh they're actually ranked 41st Right. So it's kind of, right. you know, it's not that much behind Latin American countries because the, the differential is not so large. Um, but there is a difference in the type of happiness. Um, and what I think is why that the, the, the happiness, the evaluative happiness is used is because it kind of fits, you know, what we like to believe is important for life. But I also mm. think it's important to have both. So laughing and smiling every day. So a country like Costa Rica, for example, uh, known for its Pura Vida, the simple life, we don't have much, but we're happy. Um, you know, have you know, a third of the, or a fifth of the income that somewhere like the USA has, but has higher happiness levels in terms of moment to moment. And also evaluate that people there evaluate their life in terms of happiness much higher as well than the USA. And that's quite stark yeah. and interesting. Um, and that's why I think it's interesting when you've got countries that are actually doing well at both. Um, but then that's not me even mentioning the idea of meaning and purpose, which is the third type of happiness, which is how I try to live my life. Um, and if you like, so a country like Bhutan, sorry, I'm going off on one here. I don't know. No, 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 no. It's really interesting. Um, so a country like Bhutan, the way they measure happiness there for a country is more in line 
with what you might call a eudaimonic type of happiness or a flourishing type of happiness. Um, okay. And incidentally, they don't do very well on the evaluative type of happiness. They come like 85th or something, which for a country that focuses its national policy around happiness might cause people to go, well, <laughs> yeah, that's not very good, is it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Point. Because it's you know it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a fluffy, not too strong element of happiness. It's measured with one question, questions about it. What Bhutan and other countries do it as well is they have different domains of happiness. So it's not measuring how happy are you, but it looks at different things that we know are important and measures and takes indicators of. So, for example, such as education, community spirit, um, environment, um, culture. Um, what it does is it tries to track each of these things because we know from the happiness research is that this is what generally causes people to indicate that they have, you know, fulfilling lives. Was that too much? Do you want me to go over anything? No, no, no that was great. That was great. Uh, Christopher, I have a hot take, right? I was talking to my friend uh, a few days ago and it came to mind that I, I had a similar experience when I was in Latin America. And my hot take is that because the political structure is is very unstable in Latin America, like a generalization, of course, but less stable than, say, in Europe, and because, say, violence is maybe a bit higher, um, they don't bank on the future as much as we do. And they kind of, when they have a party, they really do have a party. You know, they really, like, seize the day, seize that moment. They, when they have a meal, they really seize that. Whereas I, I can't help but think that often in the West, we're, yeah, this is nice, but I'm really looking forward to next week. That party will be good next week or this gig next week or, yeah, this will be a good, you know, I'm looking forward to this conference or it's something. Uh, I often feel or what I experienced was that when things were happening in Latin America, like people were just there, express themselves and really, you know, see it, making the most of it, of the present. The hot take, eh? So more just like being in the moment like present yeah. with what's happening yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than going, you know, I'm pretty miserable now, but next week right, I'll be doing that thing. Um, yeah, when we get yeah, to yeah, that yeah. next week, we're still thinking about the next thing because that's like we're kind of future thinking. I think that kind of speaks to, as I experienced it, I do feel like there's more um, there's more presence. People are more present and available, um, mm. whereas I do feel like um, we're more in our minds sometimes. We're thinking. And we're not really present, you know, admiring the the cool breeze, the trees, the birds, everything that's going on in the moment. Um, we're often our minds thinking about something or other, you know, past, future or whatever. Um, but I did get that feeling of when it's happening, it's happening and they're there and we're here. And that's mm. kind of all that matters. I don't think that is all that matters, but it's nice that they can deepen into that and still be that because yeah. – you know, I think the, the quality of life for some people there is, 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 is quite nice. And I think part of that comes from living in the moment and they feel a little bit more connected. It's almost like they haven't lost that, that, that connection that a child has, a little baby has when it's just, you know, fully in touch with its emotions. Or they've lost it less, would I say. Um, and there's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot of inspiration that I've drawn from that. Christopher, I just want to get um, back as well. We're talking about the countries and, and, and the index and the league tables. There's something really, really interesting when you kind of get into that kind of uh, that research area is um, what's linked with those re those league tables is then the happiness suicide paradox, which I think maybe Jim brought my attention to, or if not, it was someone else. But 
And I couldn't get my head around it to start with that the happiest countries kind of have these really high levels of suicide. And then I read the paper on them and it kind of, I mean, I might be butchering it here, but the conclusion was something along the lines of because they're so happy, generally speaking, um, they feel individually, they kind of feel a pressure to keep up that, uh, that happy image. And so that kind of suppresses their emotions and then therefore in, you know, the worst circumstances and worst scenarios leads to these high suicide rates. I was wondering if you could kind of talk more about that because I think it's something that maybe goes kind of a little bit uh, unnoticed, but it's something that's so, I like it is, it's paradoxical, but it was also so interesting. Uh, and I'm sure you have kind of a, a good take on it and much more research and learn to take the mind anyway. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think like what I've heard when people are talking about happiness and go, oh yeah, Scandinavian countries, Nordic countries, yeah, they're happiest. And then someone always like poo-poos that by going, oh, well, they have a really high suicide rate. Right, as if that completely undermines, you know, that idea of happiness. And you know, it's you know, I guess that's a lot of kind of because it's nice to protect what we believe to be the good life. Therefore, they can't have a better life than I have because you know the suicide rate's high, and it 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 prevents me from then learning about that and going, oh, why are they happy? Oh, okay, yeah, suicide. Yeah. So I think the suicide thing is a very important thing, and as well as happiness. But what I see them as is just indicators of something i don't think we should just measure you know how happy people are right because there's lots of other elements i think we should measure all types of happiness as well as people's mental health um and look at Mm. them not as like well okay that's good therefore we don't need to do anything but look at it more as a kind of complete picture oh okay people are generally registering you know a lot of happiness in this country kind of in a more nuanced kind of like pause and breathe type way as i was talking about earlier go oh they're yeah you know they're they're registering a lot of happiness but suicide is really high oh what why is that you know and and look at it more as a kind of inquiry rather than going haha we're the happiest and not really caring that people are you know um taking their own life um so i think we need to listen to all of these aspects and you know i mean you can i don't know why that is the case what i think is important is to just stay aware and appreciate that those are the situations i mean so you know the incidence of mental 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 illness is a lot higher than it was you know partly because you know the way we measure it and the way we record it and the way we talk about it and admit it is you know mm. more so we need to build in all of these these considerations really um and look at it more in a kind of holistic way um which you know at the moment i'm like okay happiness is a good thing to be looking at it's better than you know happiness in the hedonic or evaluative sense is okay it's better than just focusing only on the economy but as i see it it's like well all of those things matter you know there's not you know a lot of my research was on how you know the the economy affects people's mental health and well-being and happiness right um and a lot of my conclusions are that, you know, we don't need to keep continuously striving and chasing. Um, but at the same time, the economy has a role. It is important. Um, and when people become unemployed, there are problems. Um, it can mm. create a lot of difficulty for that individual. Yet we, you know, the way we deal with it is if it's an individual's problem and not being productive and blaming them rather than going, okay, how can we bring that person back into society so that they can live a f- more fulfilling life as well as, you know, we can live a more fulfilling life, which is one of not blame and judgment. So for me, it's the kind of looking at things holistically 
um, and being more compassionate. You say, yeah. 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 Jim loves that oh, word. Right. Absolutely loves that word. Okay. okay. <laughs> favorite word, Christopher. I've used it at least yeah, three that, times. That will go on his tombstone. That will go on his tombstone when he, when he passes on. Nice. Holistic. Okay, cool. So I've used it a few times there, so um, I'll try oh, not to use it again. No, keep on using it, Christopher. You're more than welcome to use that word. Um, <laughs> just, just before we let you go, Christopher, I, I wanted to ask, um, do you think that your worries have changed since you came home from the trip? Uh, For instance, myself personally, I've noticed that my worries maybe 12 months ago about the future are a lot more different than my worries now. Um, My worries a year ago was more about, oh, would people consider me to be a failure? And my worries now are more, um, am I I not going to listen to myself? Mm -hmm. And I was worrying, uh, I was wondering, did you have uh, a similar change or did you already yeah talk me through that yeah interesting question um i think to be honest i'd say that my worries are pretty much just the same you know where am i going to sleep tonight you know have i got enough to get food um i guess they're more raw i feel like on a bicycle it's like you know you're, you're dealing with like it's just you know you know bare basic physical needs really mm-hmm. it's like where am i going to sleep tonight you know how what am I going to eat? Um, which is really refreshing, I would say. Um, but being back now, ah, I guess like the worries are still there, I would say. Um, but I just react less to them. Okay. So, you like to pay them worry. less mind. Yeah, a little bit. I just, you know, I kind of, you know, there's a sweetness to, to, to those anxieties and those, those fears. They're coming from somewhere. Yeah. I try and, you know, acknowledge them. Um, and then I go, okay, how much do I really need to pay attention to these right now? Um, so I'm not going to push them away. They're there. I'm going to cherish them and listen to them, um, but just not react to them, really, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it is quite a, uh, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of bare basic survival stuff, where am I going to sleep? And that's how it has been for me for, for quite some time, really. Um, it kind of makes some of the worries kind of inconsequential, I think. Um, yeah. But I kind of look at it sometimes. I'm fairly anxious prone, to be honest. Um, it's okay. kind of always been that way. I see how the society kind of fosters that a little bit. Um, yeah, and I'm less inclined to, to feed into that as much as I was. But, you know, I mean, if there's no anxiety in my life, like, no worries, then I'll worry about that, basically. So it's almost like what I feel it's like there's like a, I'm, Christopher's got to fix them out of worry and he's going to attribute it to whatever's around. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, but it certainly feels like something that, you know, I just worry about stuff um, and I pay not, try to not take not too much heed to it really. But I know it's difficult, eh, being human. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, has, the, has the trip helped you trust the process more oh yeah like definitely. yeah yeah like were there times on the trip where you thought oh why didn't i just go home this is a bit silly or this is a bit dangerous or this and there was yeah. an, an overriding you just have to no i just trust this just the right I, at the time i wasn't um but i think when you go through some of the challenges that i did experience um you you realize oh wow there's a way out of this you know, there's no has to, needs to, it just is, and this is what I'm dealing with. Okay, I'm bringing myself mm. fully to it. And some of the situations I got myself into, I had to fully be in 
because there's no choice. You know, you've got a dog biting your leg and you're like, you know, okay, cool. This is happening. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you deal with that and, you know, it's pretty terrifying. It was like scary at times, um, mm. you know, but I stuck with it and, you know, reached out to people. Hey, can you help? You know, and people came. Um, and mm. I didn't have to do that before. So I'm like, okay, there's something that came out of this that was really beautiful. Um, and other things where, you know, I'm just like, you know, just lonely and cold and wet, you know, cycling up the West Coast of the Americas, um, getting closer and closer to Canada, getting colder and wetter. And I'm like, wow, I really want to get home now. Um, mm. But then magical stuff happened, which kind of encouraged me to keep going. Um, mm. Serendipitously so. Um, it just felt like almost like fated. And I'm not really, you know, into that kind of way of thinking, I suppose, but mm -hmm. it almost just felt too good to have worked out that way. Um, and as I'm writing my book about it at the moment, I'm just like, wow, this is interesting how it all worked out. But at the same time, I could have had another experience and it would have been another outcome and it would have been so perfect as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah, there's things I'd like to achieve and be in my life, but, you know, I let go of them because um, it'll be okay. Um, what's the worst that can happen, really? Hakuna Matata is my favorite Disney movie uh, once proclaimed. Um, Christopher, I, that's a, I'd just like to leave it there because I think we could go on for, for ages, but um, it's been really interesting. And But before we do let you go, we're going we're gonna to get you to tell us how you keep your shit together, which I think will be very interesting coming from someone like yourself traveling all over the world. But before we let you do that, we'll just give you time to think by, press, by playing the jingle and then you can let us know um, your top, top, top secret, secret tips. tips keeping my shit together right okay <laughs> cool Okay, Christopher, whenever you're ready, take it away. For my keeping my shit together tips. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting, actually. So, you know, I, I rode around the world on my bicycle, learned a lot of stuff. And then I'm suddenly faced with, like, writing a book. And I before this lockdown came, I was actually quite isolated anyway, like looking after dogs in the middle of nowhere. Um, and as I was writing my book, like, I realized that a lot of the lessons I learned from my, my travels apply anywhere. Um, and I guess similar mm -hmm. kind of thing, whatever we do, you know, meeting those core needs. Um, so at the moment, I guess what really serves me is the idea of like planning, purpose and people. And I'll deepen into that a little bit. So the idea like now, yeah. now in lockdown, like, you know, it's a bit all over the place. What are we doing with our days? Like just building mm -hmm. routine into our days and our life is like hugely supportive because when we don't have that, um, it makes the world feel quite scary and uncertain. Um, so it kind of really holds us together in a really nice way. Um, mm. um, but you know, that's not to say we don't need, we, you know, we should be so focused on that. You know, sometimes if we're feeling pretty bad, just let go of that and that's okay. And then I guess the other one is purpose, like filling our days with purpose. What is it I'm really here to do and trying to connect day in, day out with the things that really matter to me. And I guess a lot of that involves the taking the time to understand what's important to us um so most of my mornings at the moment whilst under lockdown are, are basically spent doing writing my book doing purposeful things and then the other one is people so the idea of creating connections with people checking in with people 
reaching out for support mm. if we need it. Like our relationships with people, you know, are the most fundamental contribution to our happiness. Um, but in our pursuit of the things, we forget about that. Um, so, you know, and I guess for me, taking care of people also takes care of the purpose as well. Because for me, what I've yes. realized is that when I'm helping other people, even if it's quite removed, like writing a book, I hope it inspires someone or my journey inspires someone. For um, sure. For sure. It's quite removed, but it, it, you know, it's connected to, to people um, and kind of creating a better world for ourselves. Um, so, yeah, that's my, 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 my keeping my shit down stuff, planning. Perfect. Was that th the three P's? Yeah, three P's. Planning, purpose, and yeah, people. Yeah, that's how I've, I've, I'm pitching it. I kind of wrote this like there about a couple of weeks ago because someone wanted some <laughs> stuff, some tips for do, kind of lockdown. Do you have a pattern yeah. for that, Christopher? No, I don't. I, anyone can use it. I'm happy with that. Um, and <laughs> the other thing, though, is be compassionate. I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like sometimes, you know, we won't plan our days. It'll go completely off kilter. We'll, you know, we won't feel like things are purposeful. We won't get any connection with people, and we might feel pretty rough. That's okay too right mm. so mm. you know sometimes we can't be all of that that we need to be or want to be and it's okay let that go you know and yeah be compassionate and also i guess compassionate to other people is that you know we're all doing our best with what we have and know right yeah yeah yeah, yeah 100 percent that's I mean, great stuff. Did you, do you want to, I know you have your, your blog um, and maybe your social media channels. Do you want to just give a little plug just so people who maybe listen to this and kind of want to read some of the articles that Jim and I have read and follow your story a bit closely uh, can, so that they can find you. Just want to share where your blog is and where they can yeah, find so you. I have a WordPress blog called adventures in happiness. Um, and I started that about four or five years ago when I was still an academic trying to implement research into my life. Um, I might be changing that soon to Journey for Happiness, which might be the title for a book I'm writing based on the journey Ooh. and my experiences. But I'm not, you know, it depends. I'm trying to get a publisher and it depends what name we go with for the book title. Um, yeah, I use Twitter and that's at Dr. Happy Voice, I think it is. Um, and yeah, maybe a Facebook page or something like that. But, you know, um, but yeah, people want to get in contact, feel free. Perfect. And we'll be sure to share once that book is published, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well to, so people can uh, buy it. I'm sure we'll be one of the first orders as well. Um, great stuff, Christopher. It's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, and thanks so much for giving us the time. Thanks so much, it's been man. really uh, insightful. Guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, rate, subscribe and pass on to anyone who you think may have uh, may enjoy this conversation as well uh, and may want to learn a bit more about happiness. But in the meantime, keep safe. Bye.